Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mojo DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. And this is Paul Dini. This is Brett McCreenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Spertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comics Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 74. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. And this is Donovan. We are covering the news and comic books from the weeks of July 31st through August 13th. We have a total of nine books, uh, two books we will not be covering on this episode. Those are the uh, DC Retroactive Batman in the 80s and the 80-page Giant. Um, because they don't pertain specifically to continuity, we're going to push those back off to the next episode, specifically because there's a lot of ep- there's a lot of issues in this episode that we need to cover and there's not nearly as many as there is in this episode. So we're trying to balance it out since DC didn't balance it out for us. So, with that being said, there is some news. Not a ton of news, but there is some news. The very first thing we have is on August 3rd, DC finally announced that Batman Beyond will in fact be returning and not end with issue number 8, even though there's no current solicitations for September or October. So with that, they did state that the, the book will return with a new number one in 2012. That's all the information they gave. Adam Beecham will be continuing to write the series as well as he confirmed that on his own Twitter page. But what's interesting to me is that there's going to be a number of other books coming out in the near future that are also going to be renumbered. So despite the fact that there's 52 new series, there's other books coming out. We already know that there's the Huntress miniseries and the Penguin miniseries, but we also know that there's going to be Batman Beyond now, as well as Batman Incorporated, so there's no sign for any less books than what there is now. This book isn't even part of the regular DC continuity, and it's getting a new number one. Okay, sure. Go, go, go ahead, DC. I'm I'm numb to it at this point. <laughs> Why renumber new series? I mean, we've said it before. Dark Knight doesn't need to be renumbered. I mean, renumber Batman and Detective. Those were a long series, but at least there's a specific reason for it. But these brand new series that are younger than a year, no point. So it is what it is, and what it is is lame, in our opinion, anyway. I'm not real sure I see a reason to bring to to renumber it. It just that to me doesn't make any sense. This is another series that hasn't been around for that long, and even though it's been consistently coming out since it, it first came out, and it's one of the few books that has never missed a date, a solicitation date ever since it's come out. I don't think it, it's really necessary for it to be renumbered, as with most of the Bat books, because not a lot of continuity changes are happening. So they say. <laughs> to me, at least, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to renumber all of these books only to just be in line with everything else that's going on in the DC Universe. The next thing we've got comes on August 8th. Paul Levitz, who's going to be writing the Huntress miniseries, talked with Comic Book Resources about bringing Huntress back since he has written Huntress in the past. 
So for this interview, I will read for Cumble Resources, and Josh will read for Paul Levitz. So it sounds like this is going to be Huntress taking on not supervillains, but down-to-earth real-world problems. Yeah, there's no supervillain anywhere in it. This isn't something you would call the Justice League in, or anything like that. It's very real-world level problem. And I think not it, that it is exactly set in the literal real world. I don't have a great knowledge of some of the ramifications of the Arab Spring. But it wouldn't shock me if stuff like that is going on. You're much more likely to have a moment of commentary on the reoccurring garbage strikes in Naples. Or there's a hopefully wonderful scene set in Pompeii, which is full of, by the way, wild dogs wandering around this incredible world heritage monument because no one seems to give a beep to fence it in to keep them out. And they provide an interesting moment in the story as a result. The pre-September Huntress is linked to the mob in Gotham. Is that another reason to set the story in Italy? There's definitely a fair amount of the Italian mob running through the entire series. Fewer by the time she's finished, certainly. There's certainly a major factor in what's going on, but only in the things that actually bring her to Italy in the first glance. They're linked to what happened in Gotham. A particular set of circumstances before the first issue opens have led her to be investigating something. She arrives on page one and we go from there. As Huntress is a character that in modern continuity has been strongly tied to the Birds of Prey and team books, how do you approach writing her as a lone gun for this miniseries? I think you get an opportunity to hear her voice a little more. One of the advantages of a character like that in a team book is her personality shows through. In many ways, largely by comparison to the other characters. In a solo adventure, you have to find the story moments that really bring out who she is, and hopefully we get that exploration. There's certainly some stuff she brings with her that she's either learned from her teammates or borrowed from them, or has tools available from them, but no guest appearances by any of the rest. That is her tale. We talked about this last episode because we heard the announcement about the book. I'm kind of mixed on you know whether I'm looking forward to this or not. I like the character Huntress, but I like her involved with other characters. And to have her, you know, personally, I wasn't a big fan of the series that Paul Levitz did back in the 80s that had that he did out for the Huntress, specifically because, to me, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And Huntress has really flourished recently, at least with her ties with the Birds of Prey. So to not involve the team is kind of sad. But at the same time, I see where he's coming from, where, you know, we get to hear her voice. Huntress uh. was featured recently in uh, Batman Streets of Gotham in a two-part story. And, you know, despite the fact that she wasn't the main character that the series was following, she still played a very prominent role and not and was not teamed up with the Birds of Prey. So it can be done. I'm just interested to see how this is done with no DC Universe ties, at least blatant ones. So I have to wait and see for this. Whenever a series says they're going to be encountering real-world problems, I just imagine the old, like, sitcom cliches like Huntress is going to be complaining about, like, you know, a leaky faucet or, you know, taxes. Thankfully, this sounds like, by real-world problems, he's talking about, like, something pulled from CNN or something, which I don't know about that approach, but I guess we'll have to see it. I mean, at least it's different, you know, than what the other books are doing. And because, you know, he wrote her in the 80s, like when the character was quote-unquote new after Crisis, because there was a Huntress before her pre-Crisis, but it was an entirely different person. I hope it brings the character back to the her roots. Well, here's what I have to say. I think that this is a good idea for Paul Levis to have this character tackle this sort of a real-world story rather than fighting the Joker or somebody. 
I do like it when comic books adapt real-world sensibilities. Now, granted, much of the time it comes off preachy and unwanted, but Paul Levis is a good writer, and I think that he, I hope that he, that he will approach it with a sense of respect. I mean, it could very well be heavy-handed and bad, but with a character like the Huntress, I think it's, it's an opportunity to sort of redeem her, at least in my eyes. I mean, she's not a bad character, but she's, a, she's one I really don't care for, so I do hope this turns out well, but it could go either way. The next bit of news we have is an interview that uh, Brian Q. Miller did with Comic Book Resources about wrapping up Batgirl. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Don will read for Brian Q. Miller. Let's touch on those characters heading into your final issue of Batgirl. Issue number 23 ends with Cluemaster revealed as the man behind the Reapers. Did you always intend to use Cluemaster, or did you decide to bring him back so that the last issue would emotionally bring things full circle for Stephanie? Kind of those things. He was always intended to be behind the Reapers, just like in issue 23 where there was that raid at Black Kate and the reveal that Arthur Brown was behind it. That was going to be a full arc. There were going to be three issues with Steph undercover at the prison with brown hair. Stephanie Brown. <laughs> she was going to have the shoulder to shoulder with the people that she put inside the jail in the process of trying to suss out who, was the ringleader, who the ringleader was. It was always in the stars. We just had the opportunity to play with the card earlier than intended. The return of Clumester reminds everyone of Steph's murky past, especially since, as you said before, one of your big goals for Stephanie was for her to become Batgirl versus Spoiler. And in either version, the longer version of the arc, and, or in this much shorter version of the arc, it was kind of the right when she was at her lowest, when Dad rears his head. It's when her past rears its head. That's the challenge for her. When faced with that, even though she's done all this work and put that behind her, when faced with it again, what's her reaction to, to that going to be? Suddenly there's this very big tactile reminder of how she began back in the day. There they are, face to face. It's an interesting situation for Steph. Touching on the rest of Batgirl's supporting cast, was having Proxy Wendy take off for Tibet partly done to clear the deck so the last couple of issues revolve around Stephanie on her own again? I had a very different plan for Wendy. I like what happened with Wendy, but a very different plan. Going to the last run for Wendy and Stephanie, they were going to be Butch and Sundance a little bit. And there was a quest made to broom Wendy out, so I tried to find the most actualized way to get Wendy out. This was a place I eventually wanted to take her. I just wasn't ready to take her there just then. So that's the end of that interview. Obviously, we'll be reviewing the final issue of Batgirl in a matter of tens of minutes, I suppose. Without delving into the final issue, the, he did a very good job of wrapping a lot of things up despite the fact that there was a number of characters and a number of other different things that could have been played out much longer and uh, he clearly enjoyed doing the stories and it's sad to say that he's not going to be doing a Stephanie Brown backroll story come September. This is the type of thing that makes me question how quickly the writers had to change gears because he talks about these plans that he had that all of a sudden like he wasn't able to do so based on that and things that like you know Writer said at San Diego when Don asked, you know, how long they knew this was happening, it's that doesn't fill me with comfort. I would have liked to have seen the Stephanie, you know, going undercover in Black Art. That would have been really cool. Yeah, this sort of thing, me and Josh were looking up earlier to see which Bat writers currently are not having a book, and a book at all in the new DCU. And as of this right now, it seems as though he's, he's sort of messed up, even though he might be working there in the future with the projects. But to me, it's just the fact that they had all these plans. I mean, this was still a new status quo that they had with Stephanie as Batgirl. And for them to just kind of shove it under the rug so quickly, I think 
shows both the fact that they're not very they're playing this very much and and it just shows the negative effect it has on the current writers and i think brian Miller is a casualty of that so it's a shame i think the one disheartening item that comes out of this is that stephanie brown brought a kind of unique feel to the normal down and gloomy batman books and I doubt that Barbara is going to be able to fill those shoes come September with her Batgirl series because that character is not really uppity like Stephanie Brown is. The one thing that I do find interesting is that Stephanie Brown has does have fans, and I really hope that this is not going to be another Cassandra incident where you know the character disappears and people consistently ask about it over and over again. And they randomly bring her up every once every two years so that people stop talking about it. Because I think the character at this point in time would be, be dumb for them to just make the character disappear. Well, everything that they're doing sounds like that they're being smart and have a plan, so don't worry. Right, I don't so believe The next interview we have is a interview with Greg Capullo. This interview is done on August 12th over on Comic Book Resources. And for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Josh will read for Greg Capullo. While you have long-standing ties and a history at Image Comics, as of September, you're going to be known as the artist on Batman for DC Comics. How did you get involved with the book? Did DC approach you or vice versa? I forgot which came first. If they initially gave me a jingle in the email, or if I put the word out that I wanted to go back into the mainstream for a bit, either way, it happened. when I was talking to Bob Harris, who was my editor on X-Force back in the day at Marvel, he straight off, off the bat mentioned Batman and maybe some Superman in there, but either way, it was Batman. As I continued to talk to DC, it became more zeroed in on, this is the project we want you to do. It's Batman. So how do you really say no? What has it been like working with Scott Snyder? It's cool. Scott's a really super, super, super nice guy. He was a little apprehensive coming in because I like to do the directing and the wave of writers these days pretty much go, draw this, draw that, and do a little film directing, so to speak. I've never worked that way. It's not that I think I'm the better director, but you give me a script, and just like in the movies, you turn into a screenplay. Now, let me get behind the camera and tell you your story. Scott, understandably so, has never worked with me before, so he was a little nervous. He's handing me his baby. Don't want to drop the baby, you know? (laughs) So it was really rough early on when he was very nervous. I understand, and I just go, let me show you what I'm going to do. And if you don't like it, we can work from there. And it turns out he loves everything I hand him. Now our relationship is much more relaxed, and he's adapting his writing style around the way I like to work. I'm adapting the way I work around what he likes to do with his work, because it's not cool to make anyone completely change the way they run. He and I are finally starting to get in sync with each other. We're just getting ready to go into the third issue, and as Scott has said himself, we're going to be turning ourselves into a fine-tuned whale-in machine. It's working great now. All right, so that's that interview. Not very much news, really, at all, other than the fact that clearly DC had plans for Capullo, and they had a definite plan for him to get him to be on Batman. Now the question is, did they actually want him to be working with Scott Snyder, or was that a pairing based off of Scott Snyder's work on Detective Comics and the idea of bringing Capullo in to DC Comics? That's the question that I have. I really don't like to hear when the first two issues are already finished. Yeah, we're really starting to come together now. We're really starting to be a good team. 
So, were you not a good team or a well-oiled machine during the first two issues? Either way, though, it's Scott Snyder's story, and it's Greg Capullo art, so it should be good. Just don't sell it that way. <laughs> so, that is all the news. Not very much news, because this is pretty much after Comic-Con. Everything dies down, for the most part. So, let's get right into our comic book reviews. We've got nine books to cover. And like I said, a lot to get through. So let's start off with Batman Arkham City number four. Have you ever seen a flower die? Watched something that was once so beautiful, so full of life, collapse and rot from within? Written by Paul Dini, illustrated by Carlos Dananda. This issue starts off with Batman's cover blown. His disguise as Lester Kurtz is good no more, and he is being chased by the security task force inside of Arkham City. As he's being chased, inside of his cowl comlink is a mysterious voice who we know as Hugo Strange. Hugo Strange saying that, is saying that he's studied Batman's every move, and that all the troops are prepared for him, from weaponry to uh, armor to where Batman's uh, physical attacks don't affect them. It seems that the Dark Knight is doomed, but out of nowhere comes Catwoman in a super tank. Batman asked how she got the super tank, and she said that in the fight between Penguin and Joker over munitions, she stole it in the frenzy and also managed to free Poison Ivy from it. Batman warns her not to team up with Poison Ivy, and he escapes, and the scene quickly cuts to the Joker talking to a nearby doctor. The doctor is telling him that the Titan formula is mutating and destabilizing all of his vitals, basically killing him, but he did manage to isolate a toxin from a blood sample of his. The Joker thanks him by killing him, as the Joker tends to do. We end the issue with a move very, very reminiscent of the original Arkham Asylum game. Batman swooping down and grabbing a guard from above. He asks him who is behind everything, and after some more threats, the man reveals that the man behind all this is Hugo Strange. Batman Arkham City number four. This issue was pretty good. I, I like the last issue a little bit better specifically because of the undercover aspect that Batman was doing. And what was interesting to me was that, one, we're on the, a different page that Batman doesn't know who Hugo Strange is. Clearly, it's not in normal continuity, so that, that really doesn't make that big of a difference. I do find it interesting, however, that Catwoman finds the necessity to save Poison Ivy from being encaged within Arkham City and actually lets her free so she can, you know, take habits of the park or the botanical gardens or whatever they are in Arkham City. So that's that's interesting to me because I guess maybe they could be teaming up. I also have to wonder if these characters that keep popping up in the in the comic are actually going to appear in the game. Are we actually going to see Poison Ivy or she's just going to be around and we'll know that she's in the vicinity but she's not actually, you know, a boss like she was in Arkham Asylum. The last scene to me was a little bit more reminiscent of the actual first trailer not the teaser trailer, but the first trailer that was released back in December of 2010, which showed Batman fighting the Tiger Guards, and you hearing Hugo Strange talking in the background, and then Batman interrogates somebody, and he says, Hugo Strange, and then you hear the voiceover of Hugo Strange saying, So you know my name. Well, I know your name too, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> That's what that, that's what that scene reminded me of. It was almost like it was pairing right to the scene where the trailer is, which clearly takes place before the game begins or as the game begins, and that's the idea. I'm also curious, this has really little to do with the comic, but I'm curious to know if the game itself, because it's 
a sequel to Arkham Asylum is going to explain these events that occurred leading up to Arkham City? And if so, are they actually going to follow what's been happening in the comics? Because that would be interesting to see, even if it was a short cutscene or something like that. Well, isn't Paul Dini writing the game? Yes, he is. Yeah, so he's so, writing the comics, so it should. Yeah, we would hope so, but I mean, it might be a little difficult to draw out six comic books worth of material into, you know, maybe a two, three minute cutscene so that they can show the, the differences. They might just have Jack Ryder reporting about it. But nonetheless, it was a good issue. I just don't think it was as good as the last issue. I like the inclusion of all the villains. I'm still trying to figure out how exactly this is going to wrap up because at this point I, I, don't, I can't see how it is going to wrap up besides just leaving it completely open-ended with a big big last page that says, find out how it all ends in Batman Arkham City, the video game. Count on it. Because I'm sure that's what's going to end up happening. So I think the, the peak at this point was issue three, and it's all downhill from here. Nonetheless, I'm going to give the issue three out of five batterings. Dustin brings up a good point in that, you know, because this thing's a prequel, the story has to have an ending, but at the same time, it has to, you know, also be a setup for a story that's going to not be continued in a comic, but be continued in another medium. I do like the story. I do like Paul Dini. With the exception of the last page, because that's a really good picture of Hugo Strange, I did not like the arts. Carlos Yonda cannot draw, you know, proportioned faces or faces like not shaped with jagged edges, especially, you know, Batman and some of the parts. It's the face. It, it takes me out of the story somewhat. And, and it would be cool because this is set in the video game universe to make the art like a little more. I don't know. I don't want to say like CGI like a video game because that could just come off looking hokey or stupid or pandering. But something better than this even still i like that you know we're getting prequels set in the you know arkham city universe i've said that before i'm gonna give this three out of five batterings i actually really like the art i've always liked the art and in san diego comic-con i saw carlos yonda had a booth at artist alley but it was one of those instances where he was out and i missed him but the art is like the best thing for me in all these issues the story is always pretty solid this is like the Paul Dini we missed during Streets of Gotham and Gotham City Sirens where he wouldn't write the books. And it's not special, but it's entertaining for what it is. It's, it's more than serviceable. It's very decent. I would agree with Dustin, though. This didn't seem to have too much happening as the last issues did. Like those, those set up a lot of informational things. Whereas this one, Batman meets Catwoman, and that's basically it. Oh, now he does know that Hugo Strange is, is the big bad behind everything. But, I mean, it was fine for what it was... For what it's doing, it's doing very well, I think. Not extraordinarily well, but there's nothing bad about this title at all. So I'm going to give this a positive 3 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so that is going to give Batman Arkham City number 4, 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batman and Robin number 26. Let's see if you can cut the mustard. Quiet. <sighs> you hit me. Now listen, mustard man. Yeah, Batman, Robin, and Nightrunner are fighting the Son of Man, whose face is still obscured, and his many minions who have different interesting powers. And 
reality is kind of distorted around them. They can't tell what's real and what isn't real. You know, somebody was murdered and left on a statue because one of Son of Man, the hench people, Sister Crystal, sure. she touched a doctor and turned his heart into glass and left him on a statue. So this kind of ups the stakes a little bit because, hey, there's no coming back from that. Son of Man's narrating about how this whole thing's a work of art while it's happening, and Damien gets too close to Sister Crystal, turns to glass, dies, and shatters. Batman is, of course, panicked about this as he splits in half. Then they realize that none of this is real. It's all illusions. They're able to shatter past the illusions and fight off Son of Man's hench people. And Damien's like, well, wait a second. I'm still alive. Cool. But what about these other people that Sister Crystal touched? Oh, they're dead for real. Their death wasn't an illusion. So they finally go inside the loo to Son of Man. And he does the villain exposition about how his father, you know tried to make his life into a work of art and filmed every moment of him and took some influence, you know, from the movie The Man Who Laughs. And he turns around, we finally see his face, and he looks just like the guy from the movie The Man Who Laughs, which is where the Joker got his inspiration from when he was created by DC Comics. So he looks just like the Joker, but his inspiration was The Man Who Laughs, not the Joker. And Damien makes the comment, just what the world needs, another Joker. But he talks about how, you know... With him, it's different, you know, he's trying the... With the Joker, the Joker's always trying to prove that, like, life's a big joke and it's pointless and get to the punchline. This guy, it's all about the art. They capture him, the son of man, but they want to know where his father is. And it turns out that this guy has made his father into a work of art. And we cut to where his father's hidden. He's in some sort of a stasis chamber where his body has been taken apart piece by piece, but is still hooked up to a bunch of machines where his eyeballs are dangling in this jar, forced to watch, like, a looped videotape of his son's life over and over and over again. And the issue ends with that, as does the series. Batman and Robin number 26. Going into this issue is going to be interesting. because Interviews that were done before this issue actually came out, David Hines said it was planned to be a much longer story. It wasn't planned to be, you know, a one-issue story. And he kind of, like, pieced a bunch of things together, and that's why the beginning of the comic actually makes a point to say, you know, a... A work in progress and what's interesting is you can tell some of the things that got cut out i'm sure at some point david hein really wanted to expand on some of these characters from the black garden um, i'm sure that at some point he also wanted to have the fight scene a little bit more i'm sure he wanted to elaborate a little bit more on the son of man needless to say despite the fact that he had to cram it all into just this one issue and I think overall he did a decent job. Um, he, he clearly got his point across, and it was nice to get a story that was able to get the point across only in one issue. So many times we can't, we don't see that, and when it does happen, the story isn't very good. Proof positive would be some of the things that are featured in the 80-page Giants, as well as some of the annuals. But nonetheless, I think David Hine did a really good job. I think the art was... Okay, I'm not a big fan of the art style. I can see that part of the inspiration was because it was supposed to be more of an abstract type world, but the problem was that in some cases it was difficult to see exactly what was going on because it seems like it was very, very rushed to be put together. Some of the beginning pages of the issue were supposed to be able to tell that the Louvre is upside down in the background, but somehow all we see is one wall and a triangle that's upside down. 
to me, that's not really very detailed enough to get a point across that the Louvre, which is supposed to be an upright glass pyramid, is now upside down just by showing me a triangle that's upside down that looks like it has windows. So I'm not going to give any props to the artist on this. Uh, they could have done a much better job. Honestly, Kurt, Chris Burnham with the cover could have done a better job in this issue, and I'm not sure why they didn't have him do this issue. So with that, I'm going to give the issue a total of three out of five batterings. I actually like the concept of the Son of Man. The ending with his dad stretched a little bit of credibility. Like, why does every supervillain have to be so scientifically inclined that they can, like, build something like that? That, like, you know, like, wouldn't kill his dad? You know, like, not all villains are, you know, master scientists, but I digress. I, I do like the concept of, like, he's not the Joker lighter a copycat of the Joker, but, like, a different version of the Joker's motif. And we've had more artistic villains over the years, but this this is kind of interesting. And it's it seems almost like a Grant Morrison concept that didn't get used. And for, like, what the Batman and Robin title was when it first came out... Seems so long ago now. You know, the whole psychedelic, you know, trippy stuff. Like, this kind of fits that. So the art didn't really do so well. And I think that there was too many hench people with too many powers, like, thrown in there at once that it was hard to, like, get into things because you're trying to keep a scorecard of who's who. Otherwise, you know, I liked the concept of the villain and everything, so I'll give this three out of five batterings. This was a little hard for me to follow. And two things. One, David Hine... He's been on a lot of books and that we've reviewed for this podcast for a while now. I remember, at least for a year, he's been on Detective. He's been on Confidential. Oh, he was on Azrael and Batman. And the guy is very hit or miss for me. I think he's a, he, he's a good writer, but a lot of the ideas he has, it depends on the execution. And I, I would lay the blame on why this sort of didn't work for me on Greg Tacchini, because... He's not at all a bad artist. I just don't prefer his type of storytelling because it looks always looks too jumbled, and maybe because of the colors or whatever. But I agree with Josh that I thought this was a good idea for story. I, excuse me. I think that the execution for me, I guess I want a little cleaner of an, of an execution because it, it seemed a little too psychedelic. I did like when Batman and Robin and Night Runner first started to like fall apart, and they were getting used to what what exactly was going on. But the whole Son of Man plot, to me, kind of seemed a little... It didn't really click for me personally. I mean, this is sort of like a personal taste for me with this issue. It's not bad. I just didn't care for it too much. So I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman and Robin number 26 three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number three. Dr. Isley? Mm-hmm. Pamela? Mm-hmm. You look great. <laughs> Especially for a dead woman. Hello, Jason. The issue starts off with kind of a mix between flashbacks of what happened back when Bruce died in the Flashpoint universe, as well as uh, what's happening with Thomas Wayne basically dealing with the children of Harvey Dent. At the same time, Martha Wayne's kind of in the background 
taunting him. Thomas Wayne finds out that the, the girl child is actually still alive and is trying to keep her alive. And that's when we see the flashback of Thomas trying to keep Bruce alive and telling Martha to go to get help. And for some reason, she's so frazzled that it doesn't really work. By the time she gets somebody, Bruce is already dead. We then cut back to present flashpoint time where Martha Wayne is essentially trying to beat Thomas Wayne to death with a hammer while he's trying to save the children. We then continue to have flashbacks of exactly how Martha Wayne kind of went a little nuts. <laughs> and we also see Thomas Wayne going after the person who actually killed his son and decides that he can't do it with a needle, but instead beats him with his fists. As he comes back to the house, he finds out that Martha has cut her face and she's carted away to an asylum. At the same point, we cut back to the present time where uh, Martha attacks Thomas and they both fall out of the window of the Wayne Manor. And they kind of follow each other and all of a sudden Thomas tells her, you know, what happens if I could change what happened and we died instead of Bruce? And then she realizes that he's being dead serious about this. And then she says, yes, I think you should do it no matter what. After they share a passionate yet kind of creepy kiss, we then see her say, well, what, what does he do? And he proceeds to say, oh, he follows in his father's footsteps. And after she realizes that he's not talking about being a doctor, she runs and runs and then ends up falling into what appears to be a well similar to Batman Begins. And she's laying on the ground and she realizes that Bruce Wayne would become Batman. And that is the end of the issue. Alright, Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number 3. I thought this issue did a good job wrapping things up. It told a very specific story. And because I'm actually reading Flashpoint, I know that th you, you don't have to read this story to know what's going on in Flashpoint. And you don't have to read Flashpoint to know what's going on in this miniseries. Which is nice, because that doesn't happen very often where you know things aren't affected in both directions. The, the issue is with this is because it was such a contained story, I think that Act 2, or in comic book terms, Issue 2, was a lot stronger than the final issue. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that Martha Wayne figures out that ultimately, no matter what happens, Batman is still going to exist, and it's going to end up being her son instead of her husband. And I think that you know, that's an interesting twist, but I think the biggest twist of this entire series was finding out that the Joker was Martha Wayne, which was the end point of issue number two. So I can't say that this issue was better than issue two because it didn't have the ending that, to me at least, made me completely blown away. I think the art continues to be okay. It's not my cup of tea, but at the same time, it's not bad art. It's not... And I would never say that Wardo Riso's art is anywhere near the disdain I have for Kelly Jones' art. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think it was a good issue. I just don't think it was as good as number two. So I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. I haven't really been enjoying these Flashpoint and Flashpoint tie-ins. Not to say that the series hasn't had some good notes, you know. And it's a really creepy alternative look on, you know, what Thomas and Martha Wayne would have been like in another reality. You know, as the Joker and Batman. There we go, for the shippers. Batman's married to the Joker. But uh, <laughs> I liked the ending, though, with Martha's realization, you know, that Batman's always going to exist, whether it's her son or not. And that was 
that was a very good way to close the book still you know the concept isn't that interesting to me but i did like the way that it was executed towards the end so i'll give this four out of five batterings with this series i'm going to go for the hat trick and continue what i gave the first and second issue which is five out of five batterings because really i think this is such a cool story it's such unexplored territory like alternatively what if bruce died what would happen to Thomas and Martha? It focuses on characters we don't really know about. I mean, because they're dead. They've been dead since the beginning of time. Every instance where we learn about their lives is told either by Bruce or Leslie Tompkins or Alfred. But it's all hearsay, and it's all after the fact. And it's all filtered through their perceptions. So having a here and now alternate story where they go insane. And to have Thomas Wayne be Batman and Martha Wayne be the Joker, I just think it's a wonderful story. And I really like the way it ended. Because I like how we saw Martha was driven nuts and how Thomas was driven nuts. And I like the fact that Thomas's Batman kills because several interpretations of why Batman doesn't kill is because his father was a doctor. So he had the, the sanctity of life ideal set in the forefront of his mind. But to see that his father turned out differently because he, because Bruce died, I find that to be a really excellent story technique. So, and then to find out that his mother not only kills, but is like, is the Joker for this universe. It's not just the idea of the story. It's actually, it's the execution because I love how the storytelling is, is framed with like, you see images of the Joker slamming Batman with a hammer, intercut with like flashbacks as to what happened after Bruce died. And I love the scene at the end where Thomas tells Martha, that their son lives and she's like and that sort of calms her down and then she says tell me about bruce what does he do after we're dead he says he follows in his father's footsteps he's a doctor and he doesn't say anything he just says no and then she realizes what he's become i thought that was brilliant this is such a dark and somber story but i think it's told so well that this is truly probably my favorite miniseries possibly ever i mean Ego is up there, but that was a one-shot. As a miniseries, this, is probably, this definitely ranks up high with me, so five out of five batterings. So then over on the website, Melinda gave the issue five out of five batterings as well, so that is going to give Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number three four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Flashpoint Deadman and the Flying Graysons number three. He was good. Yeah? How good? Good. I see. Only one will escape the Amazon Island apocalypse. Written by J.T. Krull, illustrated by Fabrizio Fioriento. This issue concludes the Dead Man and Flying Creation story with the Amazons under attack. They are looking for the helmet of Naboo, and they are pretty much killing anybody who stands in their way. John Grayson passes away from the injuries he sustained from the last issue, which hurls Dick into, a, not a rage, but a sense of resolve into keeping the helmet from Naboo away from the Amazons at if at all possible. With Deadman, Vertigo, and Ragdoll, they try to flee with the helmet, but the Amazons catch up to him, and, and they make quick work of Ragdoll and Vertigo. In fact, the way they take out Ragdoll is, <laughs> is dark humor. Boston Brand is trying to make sure that Dick doesn't die because he's had visions of Dick lying presumably dead, and so when an explosion happens right behind them, he uh, comes to and sees body laying down, so he's like, oh no, I failed. But then Dick gets back up, and, and so he realizes that Dick survived. So Deadman's like, all right, hey, hey, let's go, let's go finish this thing. But then he realizes that he died. It's Boston Brand's ghost form, like in the original continuity, watching Dick mourn uh, his body. So he's like, no! And, but he still wants to help Dick escape the Amazons. 
Dick runs towards a nearby train tracks, and he releases a tanker of gasoline and plans to blow up all the Amazons when the Amazon leader Starfire starts firing her star bolts at him. Dick tries to make a jump, and Dead Man helps him by leaping to his body as though it were the regular continuity. And by the end, they run into the the woman known as Britannia, who swears they are part of the Resistance. And the story ends with Dick assuming the guise of Dr. Fate. Flashpoint, Dead Man and the Flying Graysons, number three. Now, unlike the, the previous series, there hasn't really been a high or low point for the series. It's kind of just been mediocre all the way through. This series, like some of the other series, specific Flashpoint, World of Flashpoint, the, that miniseries, this one and that one specifically seem to be tying some of the characters from the DC Universe and showing their place in the Flashpoint Universe, despite the fact that they don't have a prominent role or they don't really have a role whatsoever. This one did a lot of that with, you know, with Ragman, Count Vertigo... Dr. Fate before he's killed, Dick Grayson, Dead Man. There's a number of different characters that appear in this series, not nearly as many as World of Flashpoint, but that's what it seems like it was just doing. I don't know how Dick Grayson becoming Dr. Fate is going to affect anything whatsoever when it comes to the Flashpoint main series. And that's one of the things I feel this series seems as if because it specifically has this tie into the Amazons searching for this helmet, because that's occurring, it seems as if it's more directly tied to the Flashpoint main series and some of the other miniseries because of that, you know, constant war. It's not happening on its own like it was in the first issue before the Amazon showed up. So because of that, it really isn't that interesting to me. And unless Dick Grayson pops up in Flashpoint number five wearing the Doctor Fate helmet and the role of Dr. Fate, I can't help but to say that this was a complete waste of time. So I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. This thing was weird through and through with the Amazons attacking. There's two words that it's hard to say together after that's got awful crossover. And Dick Grayson becoming Dr. Fate, which granted, you know, it's these. this is the type of fare that you get in these alternate reality tales. It just was all very, very, like, tacked on, and it's too tied into events going on in other books, and the outcome of these events is too reliant on the outcome of other books, so it's hard for this title to stand on its own. So for that, it it has some major penalties going out of the gates. I'm going to give it two out of five batterings. Unlike Night of Vengeance, this story, uh, besides with Dick and his family, it didn't really have a strong emotional pull. In fact, it really seemed kind of cynical the way the Amazons just mowed everybody down in the previous issue and this issue. I did get a really shameful kick out of how Ragdoll was done away with. But really, I mean, we all love the character of Dick Grayson, but that's not really illustrated here in this story. And one could argue the same way with Bruce Wayne and Night of Vengeance, but you see his importance. Whereas this one, anybody could have been Dr. Fate at the end of the story. I don't think this is an overall bad story, but it wasn't an overall worth, worthwhile story either, so I'll give it two and a half out of five better ranks. So that is going to give Flashpoint Deadman and the Flying Graysons number three, two out of five better ranks. Let's move into our next issue, Birds of Prey. I smell a rat. 
You smell the Mad Hatter in Marbo's disguise. He gave himself away with that remark about my statue's head. That was the first part he finished, and he was very pleased with it. Well, heck, you're not just going to hand him your cowl, are you? Of course not, Robin. I want to find the real Octave Marbo. Forewarning. We start off with Manhunter, Black Canary, and Huntress. They're all looking for Lady Blackhawk and her allies, who've disappeared. Cole is helping them with Manhunter listening in, because apparently Manhunter is now in the know for knowing if Oracle's dead or alive. She wasn't before. Lady Blackhawk and the others, you know, run into a laboratory where a Nazi does some experiments. Lady Blackhawk, because the Blackhawks have had some bad experiences with Nazis in the past, you know, throws a knife at this guy while he's in the middle of his experiments. An explosion happens, but the girls are still subdued, while... The experiment continues, a guy is cloned, and he goes up to the captured birds, saying that they have a pieces of him inside of them, and for some reason goes up looking for the pieces of them, and then finally settles on Black Canary, realizing that she's the one that has it. But while he's trying to get those pieces from Black Canary, Manhunter and the others attack. This guy hulks out, there's a big fire, and it goes down. Looks like the day is saved, and all that's left for the birds to decide is, what are they going to order? Chinese, Italian, or sushi? And then they all laugh. The end. Birds of Prey number 15. This was a continuance of the last story, written by Mark and Draco. And I think the problem is that, obviously, Mark and Draco has been known for writing Manhunter in the past, as well as the Manhunter co-feature in the back of Streets of Gotham. This was a very bad story. Both issues combined, not just this issue. I don't know how Birds of Prey went from taking on, you know, an organization that had some creepy guy that had some weird fetishes and two females who had a bunch of words tattooed onto their body or branded onto their body to becoming basically negating everything that happened in the first 13 issues of the series with the inclusion of Hawk and Dove, because Hawk and Dove were nowhere to be found in this in this story, and adding Manhunter back into the mix. So essentially, this story was written prior to Birds of Prey relaunching, because it only included the characters that were in Birds of Prey from before, and still left some characters out. So I don't know when this was written and I don't understand why some characters were completely, you know, not even mentioned whatsoever. It just shows that, hey, guess what? We're going to give Gail Simone some time off because she's writing two series come September. And what do we got in the, the books that we could just throw in here for two issues? Because honestly, that's what it feels like happened. Which is sad to say because Mark and Draco can de- do some decent things when he has an actual format of continuity but the problem is that because this was written whenever it was and completely doesn't have anything to do with birds of prey currently could have been written as a you know one shot or a mini series two issue mini series i don't know what it is but nonetheless i can see why it never made it to one shot status or mini series status because this isn't a good story it's a good reminiscent of bringing some of the older so-called birds of prey back but they were never actually birds of prey. They were just partners because they were in the Justice Society of America. So overall, I think the problem with this issue is that it was placed in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that's what affects this rating so much. The art by Billy Tucci was okay, but again, nothing special. And the story just 
to me, based on time and location, is just poorly placed. So I'm going to give it one and a half out of five bedrings. Dustin brings up a very good point about the placement of the story because the joke that people at Marvel were making after the reboot was announced is, well, now, you know, DC's given a reason for everyone not to buy their books until September. And when you release content like this, then, yeah, it's basically like not only filler, but like, uh, you know, let's put something in here because, you know, the book's ending anyway and we need an extra month. Like, it's... This doesn't feel like the end of an era. This feels like just like, you know, a random event that's like worse than a filling issue. Like this thing was boring. I could barely tell what was going on. There's a fine line between too much exposition and and like no exposition at all where you have no clue what's happening. And this was, you know, that half of the pendulum and the story really suffered because of it. And again, you're you're releasing this after Death of Oracle, which, you know, you're hyping up to be this big, 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 big event, you know, and nothing will ever be the same. Well, you have them breaking the Death of Oracle rules here already, so you're all, so you're undermining the the story that you were saying was important months ago. This is two out of five batterings, and it only gets two because the art wasn't absolutely horrendous. I don't know what to say, really, because this issue, this title has been a continuous face palm for me. I mean, I like the present-day art, especially the images of Oracle at, at the end, or not Oracle, or Batgirl, or Barbara, or whatever. I don't care anymore. I mean, I could sum up this entire title in, like, that panel where the medic is taping a bandage to Zinda. He's like, this might sting a little. And she says, so okay, handsome. I like it rough. And it's just, yeah, that's the title right there. And again, I don't want to hate this title, but I don't want to, I'm not picking it up because of what came before it. I mean, obviously, Gail Simone's not going to be writing it. Half the characters aren't going to be there. They're having poison ivy for some reason. And the reason I'm bringing up all those off-topic subjects is because this, as a title ender, is exactly what they're giving us to expect. All these last issues should be something that, that's of substance. And this whole series wasn't. For somebody who never read the Birds of Prey series again, it was a continual disappointment. But the issue wasn't bad. It was just representative of this whole series, which was a story disappointing and very annoying. Two out of five batarangs. All right, Birds of Prey number 15 is going to get two out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batman Gates of Gotham number four. <laughs> we start off with Damien and Red Robin, Tim Drake, taking out the Architect, as he's called. And he is basically fighting them and eventually he takes out the building essentially in, in, in one way or the other and because of that the two of them are left sitting there kind of covered by the, the debris then get a flashback of the, the funeral for Gates's brother and he says that he went on this big search to find out exactly what happened he goes to Alan Wayne to tell him that he's convinced that it was Kane who did it so that the uh, the bridge would be moved to the location that he wanted it to be. And Alan Wayne proceeds to tell him, you know, what do you want me to tell you? I, I can't go against them because it's your word against theirs. And honestly, who do you think you are? Then cut to present time where Damien and Tim Drake are getting out of the debris as Black Bat and Batman show up. They come to the conclusion that there, there must be some kind of secret inside of the building and needless to say, Black Bat somehow manages to find something. 
and diary from the Gates brother. We then cut to the past where the architect in his suit goes to visit Cameron Kane, and as he's there, he gets shot by Cameron Kane's son. Basically, his suit gets broken, and Cameron Kane's son is basically murdered by the architect. He's stuck in place, his suit can't move, and because of that, when the police show up, they have no problem hauling him off to jail. Back to present time, Batman has deduced that the last bridges of Gotham are going to be blown up. Some police and some Semtex actually on one of the bridges, but before they realize it, the architect kills both of them. Then see Cassandra and Dick in the Batboat patrolling the river trying to figure out exactly what to do and how to do it. And as they are doing that, they're starting to realize that based on everything that they have known from Gotham's past, everything is a lie. And we see the architect actually having a bunch of bombs strapped to the bridges and he's prepared to blow it up. Batman Gates of Gotham number four. I think this was kind of interesting. It's interesting to see that the art was different. The artist on this issue was actually Dustin Wen compared to Ray McCarthy on the previous issues. So that's interesting to see the change. And that might have been solicited. I'm not sure off the top of my head right now, but it's interesting that, you know, after three issues in, they're going to change the artist with the fourth issue. That seems a little odd. But the series is has had a couple of odd different things happen with it where there's been a co-writer on the last two issues as well which also doesn't make a lot of sense to me of why all of a sudden there's needs to be a co-writer why all of a sudden was Dustin Wen brought on for issue four when Ray McCarthy was doing the art since the beginning that's a little odd but nonetheless the story continues to proceed although I'm starting to think that we could have trimmed a little bit of stuff here and there and made it a four issue miniseries instead of five which ultimately would have been better for DC Editorial because they all love to have four-issue trades instead of five-issue trades or three-issue trades. That could have worked out a little bit better for them. But I'm interested to see how this is going to go and what exactly the history of Gotham is actually going to reveal, as well as the lies that Dick Grayson is talking about is that he knows of. So I'm interested to see what happens in issue five. And to me, that's what's important, getting me interested in the next issue before the next issue is actually out. So I'm going to give this four out of five batteries. I'd like a series set in, you know, the past, but I mean, not, not the Old West past, but, you know, like the era that they're discussing here where Gotham's kind of getting built up, you know, those big buildings and like, you know, the, you know, the police force, the crime lords and like the rich families and the stuff like that. Like that would be very interesting although you know you don't want to stretch any of these writers too thin because i don't want them to give it to somebody who can't do it so i mean i'd rather have scott schneider and kyle higgins do it but between nightwing and batman it's keep them on their one title but this was good stuff and i like it intercut with the present day things of once again the batman family working together which i say it every time we review this issue you know for for the big batman family that we have and the batman team titles like batman incorporated we don't see the batman family together at all working on something so i like this and again you know it's trying to solve like you know mysteries and stuff as opposed to like all of them coming together to fight like super mega clayface you know with Razal ghoul on his shoulder like, you know, this feels more like a Batman story, and I'm liking it, and I can't wait for the ending. I give it four out of five Batarangs. This wasn't as strong for me as other issues, but it's still pretty solid. Again, I honestly just connect to the, the present-day stuff. 
this the overall story is pretty good, but the present day stuff is what makes everything. Like I like the the small personal moments each and every issue has, and I like the fact that it kind of glossed over in the heat of the action. But Damien saving Tim was pretty cool to see, and. Honestly, I think my opinion has remained roughly the same throughout most of the series, but I think that this issue had less action, as meat-headed as that may sound. But I'm still digging the series, so I'm giving it three and a half out of five Batarangs. Alright, so that is going to give Batman Gates of Gotham number four, four out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, Batman Beyond number eight. Oh, good. The beam's headed here. Now I'll have to start all over again. Thanks for wrecking everything, kid. See you around. Hold it! Oh, wise up, Junior. Game's over! I'm taking you in. <laughs> right? Batman Beyond number eight. Written by Adam Beechin, illustrated by Chris Batista. The story of ink. It's darker than you ever dreamed. Not really. We begin at Fort Gala with Batman and several armed guards trying to stop Ink from stealing what is kind of be known as this sort of trigger device that's worth billions to several mercenaries. She manages to incapacitate Terry, and for those who didn't watch the series, Terry actually never beat Ink one-on-one. He was always either saved by Bruce or saved by some other character. He actually is actually like an inadvertent running gag that whenever he fought Ink one-on-one, he was always saved by a character, and this ends up being the case again because... Ink gets away, long story short. Throughout the entire story, Ink is telling somebody that we don't know, presumably the readers, but she's sort of expositing slash expounding her origin story. Going thing with Ink was that the chemicals that made her, that gave her her powers, started to break her down throughout the cartoon series. And and that continues here where she's becoming less stable, it's starting to affect her, and she needs more of a mutagen to keep her bloodstream and her DNA stable. So, for the first time ever, we actually get Ink's backstory. We don't know her name, but we learn that she was from this presumably third-world country where a civil war broke out and many people died, and her family were forced to turn to the black markets. Her mother died in one of the black markets run-ins with the law, and Ink was taken as a child, or at least as a young woman, by mysterious merchants and taken across the country. She fled for days and days, being turned onto the streets, and eventually she became pregnant and turned herself into a soup kitchen. At the soup kitchen, she was uh, selected for a series of experiments, hoping that the experiments would give her enough money to fulfill her dreams just to be out on her own. And now these dreams are passed on to her imminent child, which is eventually born. After the birth of her child, Ink starts to realize her powers by having the black inky ooze leak from her body. And after a while, she eventually learns to control her powers. Still wanting to make money, we see her hiring herself out to people like Derek Powers, and basically becoming the ink villain that we've come to know in the Batman Beyond series. In the third season, there was this episode where Ink encountered her daughter, Diana, and this, and this issue goes into how Diana and Diana didn't want anything to do with her. She basically promised her money to pay for her mutagen and to pay for her daughter, and her daughter turned on her, as is briefly recapped in the bottom panels on page 25. But... Because Diana was born while Ink was still under the mutagen, we learned that Ink was dealing with this character named Dr. Thawne, who promised that the mutagen would help restore her own DNA. So we learned that the entire time Ink has been talking to her daughter Diana, who was in a coma because her own system is breaking down because of her bloodstream that was, it was connected to her through the pregnancy. So Ink donates part of her DNA to save Diana's life, and even though Diana did betray her back in that episode, 
She still loves her and wants to watch over her. Batman Beyond will return in 10,000 Clowns, coming soon from DC Comics. Alright, so Batman Beyond number 8. This is, yet again, another example of an issue that ends the series for some odd reason, even though this series, again, didn't need to end, and really doesn't play into anything that was going on. I don't know, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I don't understand why DC does this, where not only are they basically saying, hey, come September, this huge thing's happening, and it's going to change everything that you know. But between now and then, eh, don't worry, uh, we've got plenty of stuff for you to read, but it's not nearly going to be as the quality of what we're going to get. It's almost like we lowered the quality for August so that we could get better quality in September, which is, is sad because a company shouldn't be doing things like that just to promote how good their things are. I mean, I'd rather go from having really good comics to having better comics than I had before than standard it's a comic to fill a shelf book to oh yeah this is good this is really good comics so with batman beyond you know it's been decent for the most part but then we get this random issue where again it doesn't feel like it's it belongs here it just feels like this was a story that adam beechin had sitting on his shelf and he said hey i gotta break out this story because my other story arc wraps up in july and i don't have enough time to tell another story so here's this one one issue story that i'm going to tell in this one and in my opinion i it's just eh. so i'm going to give it two out of five betterings i actually like that it wasn't a story arc that it was a done in one because this is the type of thing that you know you can do you know in a batman beyond title that doesn't have you know a whole other universe of events to adhere to and react to it's just like, you know, an episode of the animated series. If you were to watch it, you know, it's sometimes, you know, and many times there'll be standalone episodes. And, you know, this was cool and a uh, little creepy when Ink was jumping into the mouths of those uh, cops. Wasn't, she did uh, that to Terry in the, in the first season. It was actually really violent, and I'm surprised they got away with that in the cartoon. Wow. I need to watch more of that cartoon, so... Yeah, man. But all in all, you're like... It's, I see no reason why the flow for this needs to get interrupted for like six months or something so that they can have a new number one instead of laying it. Could, it it actually hurts the series more than helping it, especially since it's an early numbering. But in any case, you know, Adam Beechin, you know, doesn't do his usual Adam Beechin mistakes that he did in, you know, series like Robin and Batgirl. And I, the Beyond Universe seems to be a, a great fit for him and these done in one stories. So I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. Stop me if you heard this before, but I thought this overall, this is a good story. Before I get to the story, again, as a final issue, with a lot of these issues, them being final issues counts heavily on the grades we're going to be giving. So again, I feel like a tool for saying this, but I really wish we would have at least one issue that would focus on Terry McGinnis because he is the main character. Batman Beyond equals Terry McGinnis, and he's basically a cipher in the first scene of the, of the book. That's my that's really my main biggest complaint for the series, and I hope that that's rectified. But honestly, I have no reason to believe it will be because of what they've done so far. Anyway, about the issue itself, she was probably my favorite villain from the Batman Beyond cartoon because she was sort of a clay-faced variation, but she was so different. And the animation was always so cool that they led to really good fights, really good plots. And in her first appearance, if you've not seen it, she, spoilers, gets into the Batcave and attacks both Bruce and Terry. 
shoots herself down Terry's mouth, and Terry has to like vomit her up, and it's it's a really really great fight sequence. And like I said in the recap, Terry never actually beats her one on one. So whenever she shows up, there was always this def- that actually was worked in the plot. Like Terry does say, I always end up needing help, but not this time. And but he never actually beats her. So there's always a certain amount of intensity whenever she shows up to fight Batman. But with this issue, we learn her origin, which we which granted we didn't learn from the animated series. And I think that it's a good origin, and I, and I, I like it. I like the fact that we reference that her origin because we never got again. Not, not only do we never got a sense of origin, but you always got the sense that she was sort of like. Middle Eastern or Indian, just from her design when she was human. But at the same time, it did feel as though they were trying to push her character away a little too much because in the in the established continuity, she's sort of just like a... She's not a ruthless killer, but she's sort of like an immoral thief. I mean, she's sort of like a... She's a very bad person. She does kill people. So I think that to have everything be done for her daughter, who hates her anyway... I'm not going to say that's impossible to do, but I wish there was a little more, a bit of a callousness with her character in this issue, because she comes off as a good Samaritan throughout the entire thing, and I think that's a little too much, but at the same time, it was a pretty good origin story, and I like the fact that we learned more about her. Pretty conflicting issue, but I did overall enjoy it, so I'm going to give it 3 out of 5 better ranks. Alright, so that is going to give Batman Beyond number 8, 3 out of 5 better ranks. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batgirl number 24. up Batgirl is in Blackgate prison and she's finally found the mastermind behind the events that have been shaping the last few issues of the title and it's none other than Arthur Brown the clue master her father who last she heard was dead because before Stephanie died she found out that Arthur Brown had died in a suicide squad mission he came back and heard that she died in war games and wouldn't you know it they each thought that the other one was dead he found out she was alive and we get some exposition on what he was up to, his whole Aaron Black thing that he did during the War Crimes sequel, The War Games, and he says that he has the drug called Mercy, which he's going to use to put Steph under and then walk out of Blackgates. Now, he does douse her with the drug, but as Stephanie's on the floor about to hallucinate, she throws one of her custom batterings at him, and he talks about how she missed, because it lands next to his hand instead of on his hand, but then... It squirts out the goop, because it's actually one of her goopa battering things. And a callback to her old identity, she says, sorry to spoil your fun. She then goes under, wakes up in the hospital, where the physician attending her is none other than her mom. She's still in her Batgirl mask, and she doesn't know if her mom unmasked her or not. But over the course of her conversation, she and her mom kind of talk in code, like, I'm sure Batgirl's mom is very proud of her. They hug it out, you know, and she realizes that her mom knows who she is, and, you know, she's forgiven her for lying to her. Then a bunch of kids run in to check on Batgirl, including Nell, who, she was from that story where Damien had to, like, go undercover on a school bus, right? Nell, who's surprised that Batgirl knows her name, and Damien, you know, is watching from window on a nearby rooftop and kind of gives Batgirl, well done, girl, signal. 
then Barbara and Stephanie are on the rooftop talking about, you know, Stephanie's place in life, you know, and how she feels, all she's overcome. And Barbara asked her what she saw when she was under the influence of mercy. And we get probably my favorite part of the book, like a bunch of pages of uh, stuff that like, you know, could have been future issues of Batgirl that now will never be, including her and Damien fighting some hoods. Batgirl and a bunch of other DCU women like Stargirl, Supergirl, Miss Martian, Bond, you know, all dressed as fairy tale creatures, fighting other fairy tale creatures. And then this is my favorite one. <laughs> it's Barbara Gordon as a Green Lantern in a Green Lantern battlesuit. Stephanie Brown as a Blue Lantern and Damien as a, what else? A Red Lantern fighting a bunch of Black Lanterns. It's a really cool page. And then an interesting one, a photograph of that says 1944 on it. And it's three Batgirls with the old Blackhawks. And it's the Cassandra Cain Batgirl costume, the Barbara Gordon Batgirl costume, and the Stephanie Brown Batgirl costume. We go to what we assume is Stephanie's college graduation, where she's fighting the Royal Flush Gang. And then into the way future where she's tucking her child into bed and then fighting crime with Nell as the future Batgirl. That was confirmed as Nell in an interview by Brian Q. Miller. And Stephanie just talks a lot about, like I said, you know, she's happy with her life and the moment is hers. And she swings away saying, it's only in the end if you want it to be. And that ends the book and ends what's surprisingly called Batgirl Volume 3, which confuses me, unless they're counting that Adam Beach and miniseries as Volume 2, or counting that Batgirl special from the 80s as Batgirl Volume 1. Alright, so Batgirl number 24. This was a very good issue, despite the fact that Brian Q. Miller has gone on to say that he had a lot of other plans. He did a very good job at wrapping it up. I think the reveal at the end of issue 23 with Cluemaster being behind the Reapers was interesting, but this was kind of like the swan song for Batgirl. Not only did we see the conclusion of not so much the conclusion of the story because a lot of the conclusion was in issue 23 but the conclusion of just her story hopefully for now and and really the best part of it was because she was under you know the mercy uh flower that's what kind of essence caused a lot of those images and some of those images were just utterly amazing and just to think of some of the possibilities if possibly some of those ideas that were shown in those images were actually possibilities for future stories that came from the mind of Brian Q. Miller. I have to say, you know, I, I would be definitely interested in seeing some of those stories come to light. I think this is one of the series that is going to be mostly missed, and I think it's a shame that Stephanie Brown isn't going to be having her own title come come next month, but at the same time, I think Brian Q. Miller did a good job of wrapping things up that need to get wrapped up and not leaving anything that just, oh, well, here, you know, there's a good chance I might come back sometime in the distant future, and if so, then I could rehash this this plot element that I left hanging there, because reality is, nowadays, doing things like that just annoys people, because if you don't ever come back to finish what you intended to tell... Nobody's ever going to know except when you tell somebody in an interview, and then at that point you don't. You're just saying, "Oh, well, I wanted to do this," but you're not actually seeing how it was actually going to play out. So, I'm glad that he wrapped it up the way he did. The art was amazing, especially with those pages of the under the mercy flower. 
just overall great stuff. I'm gonna give it four and a half out of five batterings. I love the scene with Stephanie and her mom. I love how kind of the elephants in the room after Stephanie came back. Well, there was a few elephants in the room. One of them is her kid. One of them is everyone knows that she was Robin because it was on the news in the story that Arthur Brown references this issue. But in any case, you know, one of the elephants in the room since Stephanie came back is when is she going to see her father again? And I'm glad that we got that. It was a great way to put a cap on this series. And I liked how, you know, this is one of the few quote-unquote final issues that actually felt like a final issue because they bring things, you know, people back like, you know, Nell, and they have Damien, who's always had this adversarial relationship with, you know, Stephanie, you know, like kind of like you see that their relationship has like gone to the next level. I don't mean like romantic relationship to next level, but you know what I mean? Like in his respect, like I said, the scene with her mom is good. And I love those pages. Like that was awesome. Those different story ideas. I love how we got this. And and it makes me even more sad that the book is canceled. One of my quibbles is the conversation that Stephanie has with Barbara. It's cool and all, but like, why are they having this conversation? Does Stephanie know it's the last issue? Like, to them, to us, to us, you know, this is the end of the era. This is the end of, you know, post-zero-hour Infinite Crisis DCU. To them, this is Wednesday. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to Dustin and Don like, boy, you know, when I look back and think about our lives and reviewing these Batman comics, it makes me realize, you know, how happy I am that we're all together, you know, and what I saw under the drugs and <laughs> um, I love that last line it's only end if you want it to be even though that line's a lie because I don't want it to be the end but yet it is the end <laughs> so I wish that we would have seen like other supporting characters here to close off the series like Jordana and Detective Gage but otherwise this was a good issue and my favorite DC book in months probably definitely 5 out of 5 batterings you know close the book on the series for good from the cover on, this issue is awesome. And it really shows the best of what this title was, which is like just A-list book disguised as a B-list book, I think. First of all, I love the cover because Dustin Nguyen likes to draw like, or he, we see a lot of his art like be very, very nuanced and very, it can be dark and creepy and, and disturbing. But this is just a gorgeous cover, like just art-wise. I love I just love how Stephanie looks at this and the, how they've incorporated all the all the characters that have been throughout the title. Clue Master was like the best villain they could have ended the series with, and it, a couple of uh, read-throughs before I actually realized, oh, duh, she actually does nail him in the end. And I love the the fact that she says, "Sorry to spoil your fun." That's just that's a perfect line for that kind of thing. The the scene with her mother I thought was maybe a little pat, but it was it was needed, and I I, I love that. I love the scene with Damien. Because Damien's grown, and, and I think that a lot of Damien's growth is owed to Stephanie, which is great. And then the splash pages, which are just like, they're so cool. And I love the Lantern one because, I mean, if you don't get the joke, Barbara is Will, so she's a Green Lantern. She's a lot of Will. Stephanie is Hope. That's why she's a Blue Lantern. And obviously Damien is Rage. And I thought that was cool. I think that this issue is rushed because it obviously is, I mean, because of the relaunch. But Brian Kimmel works the best of what he can do with it. And his best is really some of the best DC has seen in the past couple of years. Five out of five better rings. Alright, so that is going to give Batgirl number 24 five out of five better rings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Red Robin number 26. You work with me, Tim. You follow the rules. Rule number one, you give me everything you've got. Rule number two, 
Then you give me more. And rule number three. Yeah. I make the rules. Written by Fabian Nasaiza, illustrated by Marcus Toe. This issue is basically Tim versus Captain Boomerang. We start off the issue with Tim and Captain Boomerang at odds. And Tim saying that his dead father, who was doing all this with, probably wouldn't want him to do it. So Tim asks himself, why am I trying to kill Captain Boomerang? We flash back to the beginning of Tim's shenanigans. The long and short of it is that he's basically manipulated Captain Boomerang into going up against Mr. Freeze, putting him in a situation where he, where he would be killed. Tim goes through a lot of a lot of technical processes to have this happen, and Captain Boomerang is under the assumption that he has Black Lantern energy and wants Mr. Freeze to help empower it because it could possibly bring back his dead wife, Nora, which I guess she's dead. I, I don't know if she's alive or dead at this point. But anyway, Tim's conscious eventually gets to him. He ends up saving Boomerang by stunning him, and he thinks to himself, okay, I can't let somebody else kill him, and I can't let Boomerang kill himself, so I'm left with no other choice but to kill my, kill him myself. So Tim and Boomerang, Red Robin and Boomerang go toe-to-toe. Red Robin quickly incapacitates him to where he's, he's hanging him over a roof. But he is pulling him up with, with Boomerang talking him, saying that you don't have the stones, you don't have the guts, we both know it. And Tim is tempted to, but ends up saving his life and not killing him. He is set upon by Batman and Robin with Dick saying that it took a lot of courage to ignore the temptation to take the easy way out. And Tim just doesn't, doesn't even look at him. He says, yeah. And, and Batman and Robin kind of just leave on that note. But the, the real Batman, Bruce Wayne, is there, and as Tim unmasks, speaking to him as Tim Drake, Batman says, despite saving him, you made all the wrong choices. You knew that Harkness would have done this by himself, so yeah, you saved him tonight, but what about tomorrow? So Tim says, basically, he resolves that this is who he is now, for better or for worse, and though he wants to make things right, he's not sure what, what, what he's going to become in spite of all that. And that is the end of Red Robin. Robin number 26. Again, this was similar to Batgirl in the sense that it actually has a conclusion to the series instead of just kind of wavering. And this more so in some sense than some of these other series, there's an actual wrap to it because the story arc that was going on clearly ended last month. But instead of, you know, negating what's happened in the past and just telling this one-off issue story to fill in the gap before September, they actually kind of incorporate some of the things from Tim Drake's past, as well as make a unique story that ties into events that's actually occurring within continuity. So props to Fabian for that. I think the art, as usual, Marcus Toe has done a nice job on his entire run with the series, and I think it's, it was a good idea to get Ramon Box off this issue, off the series as soon as they did, and get Marcus Toe on because he's done a very good job. Marcus Toe is actually also going to be doing the art for the Huntress series, so I'm, that's part of the reason I'm kind of looking forward to that Huntress miniseries is that Marcus Toe's art is actually going to be in that miniseries. Overall, I think the story was interesting. It is unique to mention, you know, we, we all knew that Tim is probably the most closely related to Bruce than any of the other ones. Damien's probably more on the, the dark side of things, and Dick is more on the white side. Tim is in that definite gray area that Bruce is in from from that perspective. And the fact that, you know, he's kind of questioning what's going to happen with him 
you know, because, you know, this is something that is pretty serious. You know, he, at the, he, he planned out this thing to the point where he said it himself. He had over a thousand possibilities of how Captain Boomerang could specifically pick the, the, the choice that would not get him in the position of death. But ultimately what it come, came down to was, you know, the point was there was still the possibility of him going the route of being able to basically kill himself, per se. And Bruce Wayne brings up an excellent point when telling Tim that. And I think overall this was a great story. Four and a half out of five bad rings. This was... Okay. The Red Robin series began... Everyone thinks Bruce is dead. Tim's like, no, Bruce is alive. The first few issues are everyone telling Tim he's crazy, and Tim being the only one that would basically stand by Bruce. And that was, like, you know, the big point of the Batman Reborn era, that, like, Tim was the only one who had faith, that Bruce was surviving, that Bruce could do it. So, the series doesn't end with validation from Bruce, you know, about everything that Tim's done since then and how, like, he's proud of Tim and, like, just, which would be a great book. And instead, it ends with Bruce being, like, that was a bad, bad boy. Bad boy. (laughs) And then swings off into the night. Uh, One could argue, you know, I suppose one could argue that, like, that's the point, though, like, that, like, you know, of Red Robin, that he was going on the darker path and, like, this is where he's ended up and that's the bookend, but... I don't think that's what it should have been. Now, I could see Tim getting into a fight, you know, with Captain Boomerang or something, and in the heat of the moment, his anger making him want to murder him. I could see that happening because that's the guy to kill the dad. I can see a situation like that playing out where, like, he's falling and Tim says, should I save him or not? This was premeditated murder. This was like Tim had to, like, you know take out the mousetrap game and move every single lever into the perfect place so that like his 10-step plan to kill this guy would be complete like that's like bad enough to get him into arkham or blackgate like this isn't like you know dick letting you know tarantula shoot blockbuster or when tim thought he killed that guy in that other run this isn't like this isn't like moments where like i can't where, where like you know nightwing thought that the joker had killed tim drake so he beat the joker to death until they had to revive the Joker. This isn't Superman killing the Phantom Zone. This isn't any of those. This is Tim. A guy that's minding his, you know, Captain Boomerang's minding his own business, not doing any crimes. Tim puts in a series of events that are meant to kill this guy, which I have a problem with. And it's just, it ends this series on a downer note for me. Which, you know, I can kind of forgive a little bit, but I can't forget. So, two out of five batterings. I don't think I've ever been more conflicted on a comic book issue, ever, really. I mean, when I read this thing, I really wanted this to be better than Batgirl. And, I mean, I love the Batgirl title, but I love Tim Drake. Tim Drake is one of my favorite characters. Most of my comic book collection has, in terms of consecutive issues, is made up of Tim's various issues from and Robin is Red Robin. So, like, I follow this guy. I believe I know the ins and outs of his character. So when I read an issue where he plans the murder of, of a hapless villain from beginning to end, and it, it, the issue ends with that not being resolved morally or ethically, it just does not sit right with me. But at the same time, there was no promises or guarantees that he wasn't going to get out of the gray area that Red Robin supposedly put him in as a title. Because, as Josh said, Red Robin was all about him 
trying to do what he does. He basically tried to prove that Bruce was alive, and to do that, he didn't want to soil the Robin name, so he took on Red Robin, which was already soiled by Jason Todd, and basically that led him free to give in to his darker inhibitions and basically do what he felt he had to do, do what he felt was easier to do, and do what he thought was best for, best for his goals. Now we're talking about Tim basically seeding vengeance for, for his dad's killer, which I like the fact that it still burns at him that his father's dead. I mean, it's been a while. It's been over five or six years since his dad died in real time. But for the character like, like this, or for a situation like this, it makes so much sense that it still hurts him. At the same time, first of all, the DC relaunch is seriously gutting these final issues because it is so rushed that all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Tim wants to kill Captain Boomerang. I mean, I kind of forgot how he dealt with his son back in the um, Freddie Williams run, but I don't remember Tim being changed this much. There's the difference between working with villains and, you know, to, 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 to get your end goals and then killing somebody just for revenge. He's not doing a moral good because Captain Boomerang is not that horrible of a villain. This is not the Joker. This is not Two-Face. This is not even Rachel Ghoul. This is Captain Boomerang. And the way his father died, I mean, of course he wasn't there to see it, but it was sort of happenstance. But Tim is basically, he's not becoming Batman, he's becoming Jason Todd. And it really, really, really makes me conflicted because fair game if you want to change a character and have it go to places where people may be afraid to go, because that's better storytelling. But at the same time, does it make sense within the previous established intentions of that same character? I didn't know, so I, I went out and asked Fabian Asaiza, on Facebook that I really just asked like what does this mean for the character because I'm not sure if this is really where he was planning to go and Fabian actually came back and messaged me what he said was quote I think this story answered the questions you ask Tim didn't do it planning for it so that your victim is practically choosing to die could have allowed Tim to rationalize his, his way around his guilt but he knew that and therefore chose not to let Harkness die the ending of Batman saying what about tomorrow it's simply indicative that we will never really know the choices Tim will make now because of the new DC New. I want readers to, to question what they thought those choices ju- might be just as much as the characters do. So hopefully not misinterpreting his answer. I feel that he wanted to leave the character on sort of a complete moral question mark so as to just leave, leave that as a stark reminder of how he's going to be changed in the reboot and just to leave the series on a definite change for the character. And applaud that from a storytelling perspective... It's still Tim Drake, and Tim Drake, up until this issue, has always been a straight-laced hero, which we love him for, which is making this so, so damn conflicting for me. So, I gotta give this two and a half out of five veterans, because it has a lot of good and a lot of bad, and they just meet the middle for me. And over on the website, Austin, who's also known as Swap Star, gave it three and a half out of five veterans. So it's going to give Red Robin, number 26... Three out of five batarangs. Let's move into our final issue. Detective Comics number 881. If you make yourself
written by Scott Snyder, art by Jacques and Francesco Francavella. The issue starts off with essentially Jim Gordon looking over a map of a bunch of different places that we have seen throughout the entire Scott Snyder run on Detective Comics, which shows the boarding house, the Avery, the box diner, the clinic, all places we've seen James Gordon Jr. actually in. Essentially, what has happened is that everyone is fully aware that Barbara Gordon has been kidnapped by James Gordon Jr., and we're shown that by James having her basically stabbed to her wheelchair. He starts explaining that she was the one person who saw him for who he really was, and for him, there was something that he really appreciated, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't still want to make her suffer and, and torture her. He does ask her how did she know and then she explains a story to him about a bus driver who called him Four Eyes when they went to day camp when they were younger. The entire time this is all happening, Batman is trying to figure out exactly what's going on along with the help Red Robin back at the Batcave and they slowly determine where he could be at but the problem is that all the tracers aren't working and what ends up happening is that James Gordon Jr. actually gets a hold of Dick Grayson and he's fully aware of who Batman is and he knows that it's Dick Grayson. He starts essentially laying out his plan of exactly what he what he's planning on doing and he, he gives the history of exactly how he, he came to be the person that he is, how he got involved with the the trial for the drugs, he started to realize ultimately that he felt as if he was special because he didn't feel emotion and that was actually a benefit and not a, a curse per se. So he ends up getting a sign to return back to Gotham City while he's on this trial for this drugs and it's because Batman returns and Batman's smiling and he realized exactly who Batman really was so because of that he goes back to Gotham City and it lays out his entire thing it actually says that he was the one who actually saved Dick from the auctioneer when the auctioneer found you know basically told everybody hey uh, this guy's here and he's not supposed to be basically James Gordon Jr.'s methodic plan of exactly how everything works so that he could get to everybody he wanted to get to. While this is all happening, Barbara ends up escaping and James goes to try to find her to finish her off. And as she does this, he ends up getting stabbed in the eye by her once he finds her. <laughs> the stake or a piece of wood. And she ends up trying to crawl away. And as she's trying to crawl away, Batman shows up. And they come to find out that uh, Batman knew where he was. They were really just waiting for the signal to kick in, but when he met, when Dick Grayson met James Gordon Jr., you know, a couple issues back when James Gordon asked him to meet him, he actually put a tracer into his palm so that he could find out. Uh, Dick catarizes the wounds for Barbara, and James G Gordon Jr. ends up escaping and is out on the bridge where he initially, you know, the famous bridge that he he's actually known for and he's about to jump from the bridge and Jim Gordon shows up and shoots him in the leg and essentially what ends up happening is 
he's about to fall off and Jim Gordon actually actually grabs him and says I'm not letting you go and turns out he's definitely not going to let him go back at the crime lab that Wayne Enterprises donated to the Gotham City Police Department they're shutting down shop because the police department hasn't been using it and Gordon and Dick Grayson that kind of are exchanging a, a bunch of different words about why is it that it always seems like Gotham knows all of your nightmares and plays on them? And we then cut to a baby in a stroller who has a very odd look on her face. And we're led to believe that, well, I guess we might have to wait 10 to 12 years to find out whether or not the babies were actually infected with the, the formula from James Gordon Jr. And that is the end of Detective Comics. So the final issue of Detective Comics, when I read this issue, I was partially speechless. There was not so much as big of a reveals as there has been in the the last couple issues, but nonetheless, the thing that really gets me is that you know Scott Snyder did this amazing job with laying out the exact plan, and from the very beginning of Scott Snyder's run, you think back to when we first saw James Gordon Jr., he was just this this real short backup story in the back of Detective Comics, and it was basically like this thing to overlook, you know. When, you, when I look back on it, I think to myself, it was good stuff, but it was the backup story. It wasn't the main thing. And as the months progressed and the backup story kind of disappeared, and then we had an issue where it was focusing more on James Gordon Jr. to kind of bridge the gap between the fact that they weren't going to have the the backup stories. I at that point I, I had to feel that there was some there was something important about what he was telling. But even to the time that I read this issue for the first time, I still cannot say that James Jr. actually had this role throughout every single bit of the story. I mean, the the only thing that he really didn't have a bit in was the most recent story in Detective Comics, which was. The, the Tony Zuko's daughter, that was the one thing that really wasn't... Except for the last few story, single stories with with Batman involving like the Roadrunner and Tiger Shark and Sonya Branch, James Jr. had a part of something this entire run that, that Snyder's been doing. I don't have a whole lot to say because the problem is it, it, it's just really good. I mean, this is probably the, the most consistent and in-depth writing that I've read in Batman comics in quite some time. I mean, Grant Morrison does some really crazy stuff and involves a lot of weird things you would never suspect, but I don't think that I can recall Grant Morrison having a total of 11 issues in a single run without having a writer take over for an issue or so, or you know, have delays or something like that. Detective Comics, again, just like Batman Beyond, never missed a date to come out as far as I can remember I don't remember it ever being delayed whatsoever so despite the fact that you know Snyder is very new to the comic book world as you know he's been doing American Vampire for Vertigo but even that's he hasn't been doing for that much longer than he's been in comics in general this guy is definitely somebody that a lot of people need to be watching out for because this guy can definitely tell a story in in every aspect the art by Jacques and Franco Francovello is a perfect mix and match of different parts. You get the horror element from from, from Francovello's art and kind of the free feel 
from Shoxard. So I think they worked hand in hand perfectly, and it's good to see that the two art styles kind of meshed to finish off the story. And overall, this was an amazing issue. Five out of five betterings. I'm not happy that Detective Comics is ending. But, you know, if it had to end, this was a great final issue to decades, you know, to, to a book that's been around since the 1930s. This was worthy of closing out that title. I like the, you know, little revelations about, you know, where James Gordon Jr. was during this whole time, like wearing the gas mask, you know, during that um, auction house scene and everything else. The scenes with him and Barbara were creepy, and the dialogue was great, and Scott Snyder does good villain dialogue. And even the end, the forebodingness of, you know, was the, were the babies infected or not, which the artwork seems to imply that they were, but I... Great stuff. I thought that the conversation between Dick and Gordon was too on the nose with, like, Dick acknowledging that Gordon knew, which I guess it's the end of an era, sure, why not, but... I, I don't see Dick giving up the cover that easily, even after everything that's happened... We do have Scott Snyder screwing up the history of the Gordon family and the Graysons again with, like, saying that when Barbara was adopted by the Gordons, Sarah Essen was Gordon's wife, where Sarah and Gordon weren't husband and wife until after Barbara was already crippled. But, oh well. And uh, this one was just weird for me. James Gordon Jr. talks about how, you know, one night to scare him straight, his dad took him to Arkham and locked him doors away from the Joker. Now, he jokes, he, he, he tricks Barbara into saying that, like, yeah, you know, he's the one that told the Joker to cripple her, but, like, he says that he was joking about that, but I don't think he was joking about Gordon putting him in Arkham for the night, and whether he's going to scare his son straight or not, I do not think under any circumstances that Commissioner Gordon would have locked his son in a cell rooms away from the Joker, especially when Arkham has all those break-ins, all those people are constantly dying there, and just ever, like, that's just, the way that the script makes it sound is that he was just joking about the last part, but not the story in general, because he says to Barbara, like, remember the time when Dad did this? Well, he says, like, did you know that he w- I was next to the Joker? As it, I mean, I mean... Well, even if he wasn't next to the Joker, he was still in Arkham. His dad would take him to Arkham, where, like, the Joker can do a breakout at any second and kill him. Or, like, you know, where where a thousand things can happen. You also have to remember, it's a, from, coming from a child's perspective, he could also be exaggerating the extent of what actually happened. It could have been, hey, hey son, I'm going to take you to a place today. And he takes him to Arkham Asylum while he's, like, doing his walkthrough because he's the commissioner. And just is basically like, see what could happen if you don't turn out the right way? You could end up in here with these crazy people. And that could have been the end of it, not... He spent the night with him. <laughs> I don't even think that he that he would take any of his children through the gates of, of Arkham. Like, you know, whether they had armed God or not. That place is like, if I had kids, I would not even, like, let them visit Arkham, you know, if I had Batman, like, escorting them. But, okay, I guess that I guess that's my problem, then, and not, you know, the story's problem. That's what it sounds like. All in all, you know, th- this was a satisfying end. To Detective Comics. I cannot believe that I'm on a podcast reviewing the last issue of Detective Comics. It's like really hitting me now. Like the legacy of this book. Oh, you know, since the 1930s. Wow. So five out of five batterings, and I'm glad that they didn't screw up the last issue. This was great. This was just like every Scott Snyder, James Gordon Jr. issue has been. Just absolutely excellent. 
par excellence. And I love the fact that both Jock and Francisco Francovella got to play in this issue too, because this is very smart because several times, I think I've mentioned in the past how I, I didn't understand how several issues of comics will have to like change artists within the middle of the story. I can't stand that. But like this one obviously played to their strengths. And it wasn't because the writers, the artists had like a hand cramp or anything. It was obviously because it was to plus the story with each of the artist's strengths. Because Frank Avella's art was incredibly spooky. Like James Gordon Jr., this guy, he's honestly that creepy as the, as the Joker in this thing. And Jock had the great action sequences near the end. There were so many things. I think Dustin was right in that there weren't as many surprises. But surprises do not make an excellent story just by themselves. I mean, the surprises were, for me, when it's revealed that Barbara's legs are stabbed. And if they remove them, she'll die within minutes. That made me, that made me gasp. When he yanked them out, that made me gasp. When he reveals that he knows who Batman is, that was the gut punch. And it's it's so rare that when a villain knows who the hero is, that is actually a shock. That one's I got me. It seriously did. Because I don't think that any other character besides possibly the Joker knew that Dick Grayson's Batman now. And the fact that he just knows all about it. He says, oh, Barbara, you wanted to be a hero and everything. It was like, there's there's nothing stopping this guy. I mean, he, he knows everything. He knows what makes these characters tick. He's willing to kill anyone to make his point, as, he, as he's plainly seen. Another thing I, th- I think we should, we should be said about this whole story is that I obviously I've, I've had a problem with how Birds of Prey has been written, and a lot of that is just like laziness with Barbara Gordon's character, but this is how I see Barbara Gordon, and I just love how she's been written in this storyline. She's aggressive, and she is intelligent without being like a Mary Sue, and without being... Uh, like obnoxious with it like the whole death of oracle thing was a complete joke we've already said it but this one i mean she's 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 in a possibly hopeless situation but she stabs the dude in the eye (laughs) that was cool and i think that it was a little bit of a trope that james Gordon jr started to monologue to batman but the story in the story sense i mean he yanked the thing out of barbara so in his mind she was going to die sooner or later anyway he had no idea batman was on the case so i think that the story was written very very smartly and i really did appreciate the ending with with james because james james senior james commissioner gordon he deserved to be the hero of this and he he was because he stopped this guy from getting away because god don't let him get away so this was an excellent end of the story worthy end to uh detective comics this the, the title gave us Batgirl, Joker, Robin, and, of course, Batman. Five out of five Batarangs. All right. And over on the website, Dane also gave the issue five out of five Batarangs. So for the second episode in a row, Detective Comics gets five out of five Batarangs across the board. So that is all of our comic reviews. Let's throw over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome back to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today is a very exciting day because we're starting a uh, we're starting to review the first story in the massive Nightfall saga, um, and that story is Sword of Azrael. Now, this is written by Dennis O'Neill, who you should know pretty well by now if you've been following along. 
Um, and the art's provided by Joe Casada, who's worked on um, the later Asriel series that followed this. He's worked on The Question. Uh, he's done some more Marvel work as well that I'm not very familiar with. And then we've got Kevin Nolan, who interestingly actually contributed a few character designs for the Batman animated series. Now, the story was published in 1992, and as I mentioned, it's the starting point of one of Batman's biggest ever story arcs. So sit back, relax, as we dive into Nightfall. A man dressed in medieval clothes identifies himself as Azrael. He attacks a man by the name of Lahar with a flaming sword, calling him guilty of being a liar, a traitor and a defiler. Lahar, however, shoots the assailant, sending him tumbling out of a penthouse and into the streets of Gotham. Azrael manages to make his way to the home of his son, a blonde, bespectacled university student. As he does so, the dying man strips himself of his costume, explaining to his son that Azrael must be kept a secret. Lastly, he tells his son to open a package that he had left for him earlier, stating that it contains what you will need, and urges his son to not fail where he had. And then he dies. Bruce Wayne, meanwhile, has taken interest in this vanishing angel that has disturbed Gotham and begins to investigate. The university student obeys his father's wishes and finds the package, with a letter instructing him to fly to a small village in Switzerland. He does so, and at that village he meets a strange dwarf by the name of Nomoz. Uh, Nomoz explains that he's a teacher of the system, and goes on to mention that the student's dead father was a member of a secret organisation, an organisation that he will prepare the student to join. Back in Gotham, Batman investigates the alley near where the fight happened and finds Azrael's discarded sword on the steps of a cellar, a sword that bears the symbol of the Order of Dumas on its hilt. Nomoz is using the same symbol to put the university student through a brainwashing process, turning him into the next Azrael. He suddenly has all the skills and knowledge he needs, which was all contained in his subconscious. His dad taught him it. Bruce and Alfred do some investigating and set out for Switzerland, determined to find the link between Lahar and Saint Dumas. The two eventually make it to Switzerland uh, in a helicopter, but just as they are about to land at a chalet, uh, Lahar fires a missile launcher, destroying it in a burst of flames. The helicopter containing Bruce and Alfred is sent crashing through the Swiss mountainside, but uh, they survive. Uh, the university student then decides to put on the Azrael costume and fights Batman, but uh, soon realises he's no match for him and retreats. Batman becomes even more curious. Azrael and Nomoz soon discover that Lahar is killing previous members of the Order of Saint Dumas. They chase after him around the, around the world in an effort to uh, stop him from doing this, and Bruce soon catches on to this as well and decides to pursue them. Uh, Bruce eventually catches up with Lahar, who manages to drug Bruce and kidnap him. And then it's left for Azrael, Nomoz, and Alfred as well. They team up to try and find Bruce and stop Lahar on his murderous rampage. They eventually find Bruce, and Azrael decides to go in alone. He takes on Lahar, manages to defeat him, and escapes, saving the weak and uh, drug-induced Bruce in the process. Once outside, Nomoz, his teacher, tells Azrael that he's disgraced his mission, he's disobeyed a direct commander from his mentor, and he's rescued someone, and that's not what Azrael's job is. 
but Azrael decides perhaps I can use this force for good, and he suddenly remembers his name. It is Jean-Paul Valley. Know that men call you liar. Know that men call you betrayer. Know that men call you defiler. The duty of the angel Azrael to bring you punishment. You will die by the blade of fire. I do not think so, Mr. Angel. You dare threaten Azrael with a firearm as if bullets could harm him. Now, I thought this was an excellent starting point. Uh, for the Nightfall series, it gives you a good understanding of Azrael and his involvement with Batman. It reveals a strong history behind the character, and you get to know his mentality, where he's from. Um, and I, I quite enjoyed that. I thought the artwork was very nice too, um, very stylish, very cool. Um, really enjoyed the artwork. Um, the other good part of this book is it there's parallels it draws between the lives of Bruce Wayne and John Paul Valley. It's interesting to see how the people around the two characters influence them. Like Batman has his strong, stable Alfred, who always helps him, whereas Jean-Paul is driven and pushed and bullied by his teacher. Um, turns him into a bit of an intense character. Azrael, I think, makes a good addition to the Batman world. Uh, he allows the writers to create a sort of religious cult um, and delve into that mentality of that group. Plus, he has a pretty cool flaming sword. But I like the mythology of him. Um, I don't know how historically accurate it is, but it's good fun and a bit different, and I liked all of that. Uh, the detective elements in this story are strong from the start, but soon fade as the action arrives, unfortunately, but very prominent in the first issue. I really enjoyed the mystery around Azrael, around the St. Dumas cult. Um, I thought that was very interesting. Um, there was one point where Bruce didn't have time to change in the Batman outfit, uh, but he thought that because he was in a different country, it wouldn't matter. So he was running around with a Batman t-shirt. It's interesting to see Bruce in a rush without the disguise. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting to see him put in that position uh, of desperation. Uh, Alfred was very active in this story. There was a good uh, buddy relationship between the two of them. Alfred was involved in a lot of the action. Good to see him back in the fray. Uh, the whole brainwashing of Jean-Paul Valley was very cool. It's interesting to see the transformation he has when he puts on the suit. He slaughters innocence. Um, it's not what you see when you see the young boy who's wearing the costume. And the boy doesn't even know his name, um, but he does overcome that mind-wiping. Um, and it's an interesting fight between him and overcoming that subconscious information that's been stored in his brain. And he fights the programming. He saves Bruce. Um, there's less Batman in action in this story, and that's interesting to see. I'm glad the focus was on Azrael, not pushed to, onto Batman, because... This what that's what this story needed. We needed to know about Azrael because we all know it's going to play a bigger role in the near future. So all in all, really enjoyed it. Maybe lost a little bit of pace in the second issue, but I liked the new characters and I think it's a great start to Nightfall and I can't wait to carry on with it. So I'll be giving it four and a half out of five Batarangs. So the first chapter of Nightfall has been completed. 
great introduction for Azrael, and as we know, things are just going to get big, bigger and more epic as we go through them. But before we carry on with Nightfall, we're taking a brief break, looking at a story called Batman the General. So tune in to stick with me to find out what happens next. The first piece is in place. Let's see how the puzzle continues. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. Disobeyed, you disgrace your mission as an angel of vengeance. I am not an angel. I am a man. What's your name, boy? My name is Jean-Paul Valley. That was my father's name, too. You will forever be possessed by the system, by the order of Saint Dumas. Perhaps I can use it for good. I'm willing to help you try, Jean-Paul. Anything can happen in Gotham City. All right, so that is... Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you're picking up the next book for the next episode. Let's go over to Bat Books for Delays, but Joe has been on vacation, so there hasn't really been any delays reported. Joe will be back on the next episode to cover any delays that have happened. Although by then, all of the books for August have all, would all have already been out. So let's go over what we'll be covering on the next episode. We'll be picking up Two books, like we said, that were supposed to be covered on this episode, including Batman 80-Page Giant 2011 and the DC Retroactive Batman in the 1980s. We will also be covering Batman number 713, DC Retroactive Batman in the 90s. Oh, yes. Superman Batman number 87, Batman Incorporated number 8, Batman Arkham City number 5, Batman Gates of Gotham number 5, Batman the Dark Knight number 5, and Gotham City Sirens number 26. So with that, that'll actually bring us caught up with all of the books that are coming out within this current DC Universe. Coincidentally enough, I'm going to have to actually prolong any episodes because with the next episode, we'll actually be covering the second to last two weeks, if that makes any sense. Essentially the third and fourth weeks of August for the, the Bat Books. And then the next episode, which will be episode 76... We'll actually start off straight with DC, the new DC Universe. There won't be nearly as many books because the first week will just be Flashpoint and Justice League, but we will be reviewing both of those titles on the episode itself, as well as the first set of Bat Books that comes out at the beginning of September. So that'll be a little bit shorter of an episode. Also, make sure you are checking out the website next week as we will be releasing our DC New 52 or I guess you could call it the pre-New DC 52 podcast, talking about what our expectations are for the series and the creators attached to the series, as well as some of the information that has been revealed to us as or, you know up to this point and what our predictions are for some of the different things happening within the Batman books in general. So make sure you're checking out the website next week on Friday for that episode as well. That'll be Friday the... 26th of August. Check that out. In addition to that, make sure you're checking out all the other podcasts we have. Check out the website for news every single day, as well as a ton of editorials from all of the staff on the site. You can join the forums. Just make sure that if you join the forums, once you receive that email stating you're waiting for activation, make sure you forward that off to the same email address to let us know that you need your account activated so we can be sure to update your account. 
In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're going to be posting a ton of new videos to our YouTube page, some vintage, retro-type Batman commercials. Uh, we'll be starting that very shortly, so definitely check that out. If you are interested in reviewing any of the new titles, or I guess the new number ones of titles, come September, let us know. Or if you know of somebody who reviews on another website, or does video interviews or audio interviews, forward them over, let us know about them. We want to try to get all of the different titles reviewed on the website, as well as obviously on the podcast so that's that's the best thing to do is email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. And, of course, you could always leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. You got Josh. This is Donovan. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Take care. Shippers, oh, I, there God, better not be. Stop talking about that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. I had to. There better not be Damien, Stephanie, Shippers. I'll kill them. Uh, where was no. I going with this? Yeah, the. Oh, this will be fun. <laughs> now, because this is the last issue, I'm, I'm trying to get this name right. Written by Fabian Nicieza. 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 Okay. I'm liking this more and more, and the flashbacks about, you know, old Gotham, it's almost making me want, like, a series set in the old days of Gotham with, like, you know... But guess what, Josh? There will be come September. Where are you going with this? This sounds like a trap. No, it's not a trap. There actually is a series come September that's set in in the past date, in the 1800s of Gotham City. Really? Yeah. What's it called? All-Star Western. Oh! Jonah yeah. Hex. Jonah Hex is actually, you know, he's going to be in Gotham City working with Amadeus Arkham and things like that. That's very interesting, actually. Well, there you go. Um, I mean, I'd like I'd like to go a little further into the feed, and I, I see no reason at all that I have, that's interesting stuff for the fans. Uh, 